This is the European edition of Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. We bring you the European unicorns, startups, founders, regulators and leaders innovating the rapidly evolving fintech scene today. A truly localized podcast with both English and local language content with some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in the fintech sector globally. Join us every week as we explore what makes the European Union a phenomenal proving ground for many of the fastest growing fintech plays in the world today. Okay, let's roll. Hello, Breaking Banks Europe listeners. Welcome to episode 109 of Breaking Banks Europe. Today, we are discussing regulation, my favorite topic. But in particular, we're discussing how to build fintech-friendly regulation and policy, specifically looking at emerging markets. I'm joined today by two phenomenal guests who you will remember if you uh, listen to the podcast frequently. So first, we have E. Aboyeji, the founder of Andala, a Nigeria's own unicorn Flutterwave. He's also the founder of Future Africa which connects investors to mission-driven startups looking to turn Africa's most difficult challenges into global business opportunities. How are you, E? Very well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nina. Good to hear. How do I do? I'm pronouncing your surname. Very well. Very, very well. Yes, okay. I'm I'm trying. I'm trying. Um, (laughs) We met on, I don't know if you remember, we first met on a Clubhouse talk with some folks from Axion um, many, many months ago. Um, can you go ahead and quickly tell our listeners just a bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, so my name is E. Um, I've been I've been in the tech space for the last decade. Um, I I but but I've particularly been in Africa for the last seven years in African tech. Um, and when I moved back from um, Canada, where I went to school at the University of Waterloo. Um, I um, I helped co-found a company called Andela. Um, Andela is now a unicorn backed by SoftBank um, and um, Zuck's um, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, Spark, um, and um, and um, and Algo's Generation. Um, and um, and then um, I left Andela in 2016 to go build another company called Flutterwave, which is a fintech, um, also a unicorn. Backed by Tiger Global, Greycroft Wave basically um, um, builds payment platforms for for Africa, connect consumers and vice versa, um, global merchants to to local consumers using local payment methods. Um, so that's that's a little about me. I'm, I mean, now I, I'm I'm an investor. I guess that's what some people will call me. I, I think I'm still an entrepreneur in my mind, but uh, I guess I'm on the investor side. I I run a a $20 million fund called the Fund for Africa's Future and uh, more popularly known as Future Africa. And we, we you know, invest early in founders who are solving hard problems in large markets um, so we can create uh, a future where prosperity and purpose is within everyone's reach. I love that. I love that. Well, welcome. And we're really excited to get into it. Our second guest is Gabrielle Inzerio, who listeners may remember from her previous role um, at Plug and Play, 
over in Paris, but she is now the head of market development at the Financial Services Regulatory Authority of Abu Dhabi. Hello, Gabrielle. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for inviting me back, even though, you know, now I went from being a VC to like being a stuffy regulator. <laughs> it is not the uh, the typical career change that you expect from for someone yeah. to go from the, to to policy and, and regulatory bodies. Normally, um, VC is the exit. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's the pinnacle. Um, can you, for the listeners that don't know as much about you, can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, um, as you mentioned, my name is Gabrielle. I have been in fintech now for rather quite a few years, started off at City Fintech, so in Miami back in the day. Then I uh, grew a plug and play, the uh, American-based VC and kind of corporate accelerator hub. Um, it's I built its fintech presence, presence in the EMEA region, so based from Paris, but building out offices and investing in startups and founders in the fintech field for uh, about four years. And then um, as you, well, as you can imagine, instead of carrying on with the whole VC aspect, I became increasingly more interested in how regulation was allowing these companies to grow. Because it was all very well and good to be putting, you know, um, seed stage investments and small amounts of money into startups. But fundamentally, if you weren't, you know, helping them with their growth and helping them become bigger, it fundamentally, you know, how can you nurture your investment? So I got much more into regulation and trying to understand how regulatory policy was impacting the growth of these companies. And uh, that's when I decided to do a, a bit of a career change. I went back to school, got my master's in technology policy. And then I joined Abu Dhabi Global Market, which is um, Abu Dhabi's International Financial Center, and uh, joined their regulatory authority there as the head of market development. Amazing, amazing. Well, we love this for you, um, this abrupt but wonderful career change. I think we're just going to get into it. And I think I'm going to borrow a bit from my own experience um, as a fintech founder, a newly minted fintech founder going through the process. I think oftentimes when we talk about technology, when we talk about startups, it's really easy to kind of get to an MVP, test it, validate your hypotheses and everything. But when it comes to fintech, we are in a bit of a tight spot, aren't we? Because we are operating in heavily regulated industry, right? Um, and oftentimes I have to explain to people that, you know, the reason that, you know, Ann Bowden had to go and raise 60 million for Starling um, or maybe more than that was because there are capital requirements if you're trying to be a bank, right? Um, there are regulatory requirements and and having backup funds should something go wrong. So maybe to start with, um, E, from where you're sitting um, in Nigeria and I guess kind of giving us the Pan-African view, what do you think um, is the greatest challenge right now that those that want to start fintech startups are having when it comes to realizing there is a regulatory burden and how are they tackling that? That's a great question. Um, I mean, most people recognize that the game has rules. So there's a key number. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think where the challenges tip in is meeting the requirements. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and identifying the correct entry point, um, mm -hmm. and and, and also um, 
sometimes recognizing that there might be no requirements. Um, <laughs> at least yeah. stay there at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And then uh, figuring out how you would govern yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, self, self-regulation, essentially. Up yeah. and on the time when the regulator decides to intervene. Um, <laughs> um, so, so those are the two big challenges. Um, I'll say for us at Flutterwave, we faced a lot of the first. And when we started, we didn't have, um, I think at the time it was going to be about $200,000 capital requirements that was, um, um, that was required for you to start. We didn't have that. And um, because we didn't have that money, we, we didn't know how to handle that. But what we ended up doing was partnering with a bank who had that money and basically becoming software to the bank's license um, and then building out um, the revenue base to justify an investment, um, which in turn would allow us to afford um, to do what, what we need to do. Oftentimes, the challenge usually you have a chicken and egg problem, which is you don't have the financials to go into the business and you can't prove you can do the business um, if you can't go into the business. <laughs> yeah. so, the second one, um, and, 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 and something that's very critical, um, is, um, is, is also you know, understanding the correct entry point. So there are certain businesses where, because no one's seen it before, no regulation exists. Yep. And, um, it is your duty to then figure out how to get, you know, the central bank to know that this, you know, is doable and um, and um, and how do they want to regulate it? And that tends to be a very thorny question for the regulator to answer because they typically don't have a lot of guidance about the impact and so on. I'll say one one area where we experience this in the Nigerian tech ecosystem, even though it's not directly fintech, um, is sort of in the cryptocurrency space. Mm. So, or you know, cryptocurrency isn't as regulated um, at least until recently um, uh, in Nigeria, mm-hmm. um, and so the the governors of the central bank didn't know how to handle cryptocurrency. What what does it mean if it's regulated? And so in this time. You know, the only way to engage is to educate. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you also have to, the fastest way to educate is to be live and show them a product. But again, you don't have the approval to do that. So again, another chicken and egg problem, um, which actually leads me to a third point, which is around access. You find that the infrastructure um, that you need to access to be able to build um, great solutions um, sits in regulated entities mm-hmm. and often only available to those who are licensed. Um, and as a result, people don't have the ability to, you know, um, build something and check um, if that thing works or is reacting the way they, they should. I mean, you have a situation where you can't even access APIs that would help you to build the solution at all. Yeah. So... So what do you do? So, um, and this is why sandboxes, I imagine, are the the solution where governments are able to create a space, right, where um, you know people are able to 
to come with their ideas, um, with the lower capital requirements or lower requirements in general, and test out their ideas uh, in an open market model with mm-hmm. select participants um, and see if it works before um, one scales it. Um, to do otherwise would be essentially to unleash um, an experiment on the broad populace, which I'm sure is not exactly what a regulator wants to accomplish. No, certainly not, especially when we're talking about protecting consumers. Um, on that point, Gabrielle, you've you've seen this from the wider European ecosystem from your time at Plug and Play, but you also covered MIA, <laughs> so not just the E, but the MIA as well. And now, of course, in, in your role um, based in Abu Dhabi. So I wonder, now that you're on the regulatory side, you've you've seen both sides, both investing in these companies, and you've seen it from the regulatory side now. Is it a chicken and egg problem? Are you finding that a lot of these fintech entrepreneurs are coming forward and saying, we want to do this thing, but we don't have the funding that we need to meet all of your requirements? How is that playing out from where you sit? So I, I think like everything, there's a context around it. So if you take, you know, ease examples and even ease case, I mean, Flutterwave was kind of groundbreaking. It was revolutionary. I mean, I know plug and play, we actually plug and play did invest in it at the time as well. So when you're, you have a revolutionary idea, it totally makes sense to go down the whole um, sandbox route, to be able to talk to regulators, to educate them, to have it, you know, have a framework that can allow you less pressure to actually build and show that this is a deployable solution. Because in that case, what's happening is if as a regulator, you're blocking it, technically you're kind of harming your population as well, right? Because you're not giving them access to services that they actually need. So you don't want to be doing that. On the other hand, and what I noticed and what I learned as I became more aware of the type of, you know, companies and startups that were coming and applying for sandbox licenses and applying for these, I guess, exempt statuses, is that the vast majority do not have um, groundbreaking ideas. A lot of them are actually very similar to others. Um, A lot of them actually have rules that are very well in place and that make sense for them. Um, It's actually not that fundamentally, you know, they're not so special that they do need to deviate from those rules. And even things like lesser capital requirements, even if you can, for instance, you know, prove that you can... um, for instance, manage money in a better, separate way. There's always ways of doing that and, you know, showcasing it. However, when it comes down to it, we've found that the vast majority of people who do come and ask for that do not necessarily, they just want it to go down the easier route. And unfortunately, that's simply not something people can do and do that we want to let people have. Um, I think actually, it actually makes me think of what's... um, What's her name? It's only because I'm in New York right now, but I'm thinking about her. But uh, what's her name? Maria. I believe it was Maria Vullo. Yes, yes, yes. I think it was Maria Vullo. So the former superintendent of the New York Department for Financial Services. Um, mm-hmm. She was the one who really, really famously said, um, toddlers play in sandboxes. Adults play by the rules. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, though maybe she went a little bit too far on that one, I think fundamentally what entrepreneurs have to understand and what I, as a VC, when I was going with my startups to see regulators did not fundamentally understand is that everybody is asking for, for easier rules. Yeah. And that <laughs> doesn't actually serve anyone better. We're just lowering the bar. 
So ideally, we have to keep pushing that bar higher and and, and higher up so that everybody's protected, but there's also access to innovation. Um, I think there are different ways of actually doing this and actually making things easier. Um, I think fundamentally, uh, VCs need to understand where their money is going. So I, like you mentioned, you, you mentioned the example of Anne Bowden. VCs don't really understand regulation much and they don't really care for it. <laughs> yep. They, yep. they, they don't. They don't understand why you're doing this. They don't understand why you need the money. They don't understand why things are so slow. They don't understand why you're not growing fast enough. I know because I was one of them, right? Yeah. And it's <laughs> yeah. not exactly. And it's not until I literally went with these startups and I with them into a regulator's office that I start understanding what was happening, what was the problem. So I think it's a question of maybe educating your own VCs and not just the regulators as well as to what's happening with the money, you know, how you're deploying it, what are the hurdles, what are the backdrops, and what you need on that front. And then afterwards, I do fundamentally believe that, you know, regulators aren't out there to block people at all. We get just as excited for new solutions, and we ourselves are trying to, you know, innovate and actually have processes that make sense for ourselves. So it's it's really just a question of like looking and being very honest with yourself fundamentally as a startup. Do I have a product that is so different that I cannot apply by I cannot play by the rules? And if so, sure, go ahead. You know, regulators will open those sandboxes for you. Otherwise, maybe it's just, you know, a bit of wishful thinking and trying to get a bit of the easy easy way out. So something you've both said has really resonated with me. And E, you touched on this when you said at Flutterwave, you went and partnered with a bank and kind of leaned on their regulatory framework and were able to show traction to then raise the funding you needed to actually build out Flutterwave the way that you wanted to. Similarly, there's kind of this um, almost joint venture or partnership approach with an incumbent, which is really interesting. But I think another thing that we found um, and the UK is notorious for is being able to license someone else's um, license, right? So we see this a lot with e-money institutions or with peer-to-peer licenses where you can become a distributor or an agent of these licenses. So I wonder from your perspective, is there is there something similar to that that you're seeing across Africa, E, where it's... Um, almost like a halfway step to regulation where you get to sit under someone else's regulatory umbrella, um, whether through partnership or through a kind of half license, or is it really like you have to be scrappy and know exactly what you're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's a little bit of a mix of both, Mm -hmm. Nina. So you you have to adapt your strategy as you go along, right? Because the best laid plans... um, in Africa, typically uh, make make uh, myself men. I <laughs> guess that's how it goes. Um, yeah, so, yeah, yep. <laughs> so adaptive. Your goals have to be set, but mm-hmm. yet there has to be adaptive. Um, we saw an opportunity, for example, at Flutterwave to partner rather than put all our capital into a license, and we took that opportunity. Um, it cost us very steeply in the revenue share, but over time, we're able to regain that advantage. Um, so I think it's really, really important that you stay adaptable, but have a very broad and clear goal that you're working towards. Yeah, I think there's something in there about speed to market, right? Especially when you're so young. And Gabrielle, I wonder if you agree you're just trying to show traction. You're trying to turn around to your 
possible investors and say, hey, look, people want this. <laughs> we, we've we've actually done it. And now please invest so that we can carry on doing this. Have you seen similar types of regulatory structures um, in the Middle East and Africa, Gabrielle? where people can kind of sit under the regulatory body as a distributor or an agent? Well, when it comes down to it, I think that a lot of um, founders, nonetheless, they want to do their own thing independently, right? <laughs> so it's always it's always, it's always, always with a little bit of uh, hesitancy that they do go down the partnering route. And sometimes it makes a lot of sense, right? And then other times it makes a little bit less sense because they fear they're going to lose a lot of, large part of their product or not. But partnerships on that front do do make sense sometimes when you need the coverage, when you don't want to put in the money to get a license, when you also know that you possibly don't have the in-house expertise to, you know, get the regulator on your on your boat. I mean, when you look at the requirements, oftentimes um, for licensings and for authorization of these firms, they're asking for people with, you know, 10 years of compliance experience, people who are have complete, who understand anti-money laundering regulations, people who are going to be able to, figure out, you know, all the custodian means of where the money is going. If you have, for instance, client money monitoring uh, processes in place, then there's all these things that your normal, very excited founder, right, would not necessarily be always like looking into. They're just like, I want a product that is going to make people happy and it's going to make them wealthier and it's going to, you know, allow them to not maybe think about money so much or, you know, there's all these things. But when you go down the nitty gritty and you start asking affirm, okay, how are you fundamentally going to, you know, protect your consumers? What is the pathway that you're trying to build, to build, right? Then suddenly people start asking all these questions like, okay, this is actually a much more complicated business than I originally thought. And that's the thing. On one hand, it is a very complicated business. On the other hand, it's actually not that complicated. I think <laughs> everyone can say that about finance, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. On Definitely. one hand, it can be complicated, but actually, you know, it's not as complicated as it really means. But there is a lot of things you have to take in consideration. And when you put people's livelihoods on the on the line, you know, it, it can get a little bit more, the repercussions become larger. So partnerships are definitely a really good way forward because these institutions have the expertise in the fact that they have the people with the countless years of compliance experience, the ones who are going to be able to tell you no when you don't want to hear no, right? And hopefully, if you have a good partner, when you don't want to hear no, and when you want to push it a little bit, they'll still let you push it, which is fine. You know, we understand yeah. that. Everybody understands that on that front. But I think it kind of falls down on the fact that all regulators are a little bit different. Um, I think I've realized that, particularly in Europe and, well, in the Middle East, as well, we see it even across countries. You have regulators who do not want to talk to the public, and you have others that are very, very much based on dialogue and industry dialogue and learning and you know, and speaking with firms. Um, I was very lucky because Abu Dhabi Global Market is very much down the path of having a cooperative aspect. So lots of talking to firms. They can email us all the time. There's a lot of discourse that goes back and forth. Um, but other, I have been in rooms with regulators who just sit there in front of you and listen. And they listen like a stone wall. And then they'll say, we will get back to you in three months. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've so, experienced that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So honestly, sometimes when you're faced with a regulator like that, I would say maybe you should partner, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's that's completely right. Um, I think this is a perfect opportunity to go to a quick break. Stick with us. We'll be right back. 
at timepledge.org. We are building the largest free coaching and advisory platform for entrepreneurs by providing mentorship opportunities based on pledge time. Our network of seasoned industry experts acting as coaches is working for free, pledging their valued time to the next generation of entrepreneurs who will change everything. Our portfolio of sessions goes over every skill an entrepreneur needs to successfully launch his or her startup, from how to pitch and behave with investors to how to best market your idea online or even how to best manage your team. We have the perfect sessions with the perfect mentors. Want to learn how to become the best entrepreneur you can be or mentor the next generation of entrepreneurs in Africa and Asia? Please visit timepledge.org and let's get you started. And welcome back. We are talking about building fintech-friendly regulation in emerging markets today. And in the first half, we talked quite a bit about the challenges that fintech founders or founding teams have when trying to get themselves up and running. But what I want to talk about now is the really exciting things that are happening when it comes to regulation and regulatory bodies around the world. And that is the solutions that are coming forth. So it's now actually been, um, well, it's, it's very evident. We know that regulatory change and policy change can have a huge beneficial impact on fintech. Um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, PSC2 uh, in Europe was published almost exactly six years ago. I might be off by about five days. I think it was like December 2015. And since then, we have seen an explosion of fintech companies that have really thrived off of this this policy change. Um, We've seen open banking startups, you know, crop out of nowhere. We've seen um, startups that are built on the open banking startups and so on and so forth. It's a really exciting time. So I wonder, you know, if you are a policymaker, if you're a regulatory body, what are the indicators that you're looking for when you are in what we call the emerging markets that are driving that conversation forward to write good policy, to write good regulatory frameworks? Because I think, and I'll just go ahead and be very honest about this, I think there is um, a bit of a misconception when people talk about emerging markets they kind of think that everything is a copy paste of what's happening in the Western world. When really, from where I sit, I think there's huge innovations that are happening in in emerging markets that are actually leapfrogging what we see in Europe, in the US. So Gabrielle, I'll go to you first from a policy perspective. And now that you're literally in that role, what are you looking at to dictate the kind of future policy that you're setting out in in Abu Dhabi? So no policymaker really wants to say this, especially not a regulator, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it anyway in a certain way. Um, the fact is fundamentally when you write good policy, you're trying to make your jurisdiction attractive, right? You want, <laughs> yeah. you, you do, you know, it is, yeah. it's, it's a sort of a form of soft power, right? Yep. You want companies to come, you want companies to set up shop, you want them to service your local population, right? Yep. And you want them to even potentially service populations that are outside of your jurisdiction through you. So you're looking at all these aspects. You're looking at your people. You're looking at people outside in the world. You're looking at the interactions that are going out. So it's it's all this multifaceted way of looking at, okay, what kind of policy do I want, want to write? And also, who do I want to be? What is my role in the world? 
right? And so you're going to see regulators and jurisdictions from across the world that are going to look at are going to decide different rules based on who they want to be and what they want to uh, want, want to do. So, for instance, I know that what we've done particularly in, uh, in Abu Dhabi Global Markets, so in AGM, has been, for instance, when you look at things like cryptocurrency regulation, the goal there was to be basically very hard to lift a bar so high up that any sort of cryptocurrency uh, broker or dealer that would come into to our jurisdiction would then be able to go abroad elsewhere and also set up shop easily over there, right? In order to basically keep that bar high so that there would never be any issues that they would have, that they would need more difficult law rules on top of them. Like once they, they abide by our rules, that's it. That's done, right? They can essentially be just as good anywhere in the world that will accept them. So that's one way of doing it. Others have chosen, you know, because they want a more active market, for instance, to maybe lower requirements and maybe lower like custodian issues to the point that, you know, it makes it a little bit easier for people to set up shop there. So mm -hmm. some people go down the rules of like ease of service. Others have gone down, you know, let's raise the bar super high to like to like allow us to grow a jurisdiction and allow us to be able to connect to other countries. There are different facets and different ways of looking at it. But then you also have to think it's all very well and good to be looking at business. And a lot of policymakers and regulators are trying to bring business into their countries, regardless whether it's in the UK, whether it's the US, whether it's, you know, Abu Dhabi, whether, you know, it's South Africa. But nonetheless, you also have to find a way that your policies make sense for your homegrown entrepreneurs. Because yep. you can't just be you can't just be a jurisdiction that they're counting on foreign talent and foreign people to come put their you know offshoot company in in there. No, you want your you know local twenty something year old or forty something year old bankers or you know anyone in that spectrum who has an idea to be able to say, hey, I want to I want to build this and I want this to be able to do this here at home. I don't want to go elsewhere where there there's different you know rules. I want to be supported and. That's where it actually makes sense to, you know, look at policies and look at frameworks in such a way as to essentially be able to protect that population, but also be open in dialogue enough to be able to change policies and maybe change exceptions and even give exceptions to people what it's very well deserving. And that kind of goes back to our thing about sandboxes, right? If you have the means and if you have an idea that's very good, no one's going to really stand in your way. You just have to be able to explain all the pathways and all the ways you're going to protect the people that you're servicing. And if you can do that, then it's all, it's all pretty much dandy, right? <laughs> e, I'm, I'm very curious. Um, I'm sure you have had um, more conversations with the regulator than you care to remember. Um, I was speaking to my friend Benji, who's the founder of Nala Money in Tanzania. And he was saying, you know, he's, been down that route with um, the regulator in Tanzania. And I wonder from, from your perspective and you're, you know, obviously further down your journey now, something is obviously going on that's wonderful in Nigeria. You've seen such an explosion of like fintech in particular. And so I almost view as you at Flutterwave were very much the vanguard and, and liaising with the regulator very early on to kind of set the tone to build this environment that is much more friendly, allowing for our friends at Paystack to come up and also, you know, follow in, in your footsteps. So what were those conversations like 
to have with the Nigerian regulator? So I think the first thing is, you know, there's a long education process with the regulator. Mm. And it must come from a place of trust because you can imagine in a country of 200 million people, um, everyone's trying to talk to the regulator. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I think for us, the first brilliant thing we, we managed to do was we went and got an ex-regulator on our staff, um, wow. on our on our, um, not on our staff, on our board, on mm-hmm. our board. So we went and got the ex-regulator, both in the U.S., NACHA became our chairman. Um, the regulator in Nigeria, the former deputy central bank governor, became our chairman in Nigeria. And, and that helped quite a bit because even before we would go to the regulator, these people would check us. They'll tell us, okay, what are you trying to do? This is what the laws say. They made the rules, so they know it like the back of their hand. So that that meant we had a friendlier conversation before we went to the regulator. <laughs> but when we went to the regulator, there were a few things that became important, it became important for us to emphasize. And, and that was when I understood that the goal of regulating, and this is a big misconception fintechs have. The government's job is not to make your business successful. Sounds very, very shocking, but it's true. (laughs) Yep. The government's job uh, is to protect the consumer. Yep. And then hopefully, you know, um, your business succeeding can be a nice byproduct of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And in a country like Nigeria, which is a fairly, you know, developing country, there are other goals as well, right? Apart from, you know, protecting the consumer. We, you know, here we need a lot of jobs. It needs to create jobs. Um, here we use a lot of cash. It needs to reduce the amount of cash, which is very expensive for the country to print. Um, here we need financial inclusion. It needs to promote financial inclusion. So by the time we were going to the regulator and expressing our, our business in these terms about how it advanced the other goals, it was a more productive conversation. Right. Because even for us, we could see where people were going to be hurt or those goals would be hurt. Um, and and we, we could de- design and deliver programs that help mitigate some of those challenges. Right. While at the same time, um, you know, um, um, building building out um, the, the muscle to take on the risk cover, we're deciding to move move towards. Um, and managing the consumer's experience and making sure they had a great experience and all that. So it's really, really important, like, you have somebody who's had many of these conversations before have the conversation with you in a friendlier context. And it's important for you in those conversations to be focused not on making your business successful, but on what the regulator needs to achieve um, for the ecosystem and how your business can support in doing that. I think that's really strong advice there is to understand that fundamentally the regulator is not here to make your life easier. They are here to protect consumers, right? And and that's why they exist. And they're there to protect us from nefarious actors or the movement of money that could be funding nefarious things. And I think once you accept that and you understand that the the tone of communication changes doesn't it it's understanding the goals of the regulator so that 
It's like, help us help you, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Tell yeah. us how you are going to make our lives easier so that we can protect the consumer. That's super, super interesting. I also, now, I just want to jump in on that actually. Yes, I please. Mean, we, we, do, we do say that, yes, of course it is to protect the consumer, but I also feel founders tend to forget that a regulated market is the best thing for them to actually grow their business, right? If a market is unregulated or if, you know, there aren't rules in place to protect the consumer, then they're going to have a lot less people willing to use their product, willing to try their product because then it's just based on mindless trust. They just have to trust it'll work. If it is regulated and if there is a regulated market and they're a regulated entity, suddenly the amount of consumers and the amount of people who will use their product, it it just opens up, right? So it just creates such a larger market of people that will come and use that product because they know that they will be protected. So in a way, sure, the government was not there to like grow your business at all. They don't care about that. But by protecting the consumer, they allow, you know, they allow access to such a bigger potential customer base than we would ever have if things were unregulated. No, that's, that's a really good, that's a really good way of looking at it. And I think this is something that we've come up a lot when we do user research, for example, at Bloom, people don't even know what FSCS protected means, but they want to see it there. They want to see that at the bottom of your website, it says, you know, we are regulated by the financial conduct authority registration number, you know, and people are checking that. And I check that. And I'll be honest, it's part of the reason I've been very shy approaching crypto because it's, it is an unregulated market currently. And so it's kind of the wild, wild west out there. Um, The last thing I want to talk about is kind of, we talked about fintech sandboxes quite a bit. Um, And I think a lot of regulatory bodies are moving in that direction where they're providing synthetic data for companies to kind of test things out, to test out their hypotheses and report the findings back to the regulator. But we're also seeing um, shifts in like innovation departments where they're looking at new technologies, where they're looking at crypto um, and how do you regulate a crypto exchange? How do you um, think about remittances if it's um if it is crypto and you don't actually know where the source of funds is coming from there's a lots of um lots of stuff going on there i wonder from your point earlier gabrielle you said you know if you are really doing something genuinely innovative the regulator will will be interested in, and support you in that so what does that look like to have a regulator not understand um, and to touch on what E's been saying, a lot of education probably goes into it. But what is it like to have the regulator not understand, but walk them through it so that you can become a regulated entity in something that is genuinely innovative? So there you mentioned you mentioned first that, you know, a lot of regulars are now providing like sandboxes and synthetic data and other things like that. Um, I can actually give an example. One of the things we did is we we built out a disgustingly expensive but very useful digital lab, right? Which is essentially, you know, it has container tools and all sorts of different functions to allow basically startups to build and plug in their solutions, plug in their APIs, get all that validated, um, get it all certified and allow us, for instance, as a regulator to then look under the hood as to how it works. Like, let's say, you know, we can throw in things like nefarious transactions to see if your systems are going to like, 
actually notice that there are nefarious transactions that are going through that you should maybe be flagged. Um, we also allow banks to actually come in and build out their actual core banking system, like a copy of it into our digital lab, so that then other startups can come in and plug it in and then see how it's going to work with their legacy banking systems and their legacy testing environments. So what that's one way that we've done to actually try to understand if something is new, if something is novel, how can we connect it to the real world in a safe, neutral, protected environment? And this is a tool, so it's a digital lab, it's a tool that we provide to all the banks, it's completely for free, as well as all the regulators, all our fellow regulators um, around the world, if they want to use it and they want to open up the box and play around with it, because you know it's a public, it's a public good, right? We're not doing this just for us. If other governments are have the tools, then it's better for us anyway, because it creates you know synergies and it creates harmonization of regulation across. But one thing I have found as well that I just wanted to talk to is that when you do have a genuinely very interesting idea and you want to walk through, it's about not just it's about tailoring the way you talk, the same way E said, away from your VC pitch. I think that was fundamentally our big problem back in the day um, when I was accompanying, you know, my startups to the regulator is that you're so used to talking about big ideas, right? Big <laughs> ideas, big money, big returns. And then you don't understand, you know, and it's good for people too. It's going to change the world. And then your regulator is there looking at you like, huh? Like <laughs> what? Like on what planet are you on my dude? Yeah. Right. And it just, it, it's it's just like that. And it's all about, you know, tailoring that conversation away from that saying, okay, this is our product. This is our business case. This is what we want to achieve. This is why you need to help us because it is going to help your consumers. If you don't produce, if you don't allow us to do this, they're going to be at a disadvantage because these are underserved markets, or this is a, mar uh, a population that doesn't have access to these products, right? You are a regulator for everyone. You can't be a regulator for a small amount of population. And we're providing a service to these people, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. So it's talking about back about what the role of the regulator is and how you fit into that and how you're providing a service to people that will make their lives better, easier. And then after that, it's about going in depth at different processes and literally going step by step saying, okay, this is how we are going to protect people at every step of the way. Yep. That, yep. That, that's essentially all it is. This is how we're going to protect people from you know, ourselves Yep. It happens. This is how we're going to protect people from ourselves. This is how we're going to make sure that no one on our teams can, let's say, play with the money or can do nefarious trades or can profit for this. This is how we're going to protect people from unexpected downturns by, you know, either educating them about it or by putting stopgap measures in place. This is how we are going to protect people from external actors coming in and trying to, you know, take money or take accounts or stuff. It's systematically every step of the way. This is how we will protect the consumer so they can get all the good bits out of this, out of this. And yeah. that is how you talk to a regulator. And it's very hard to talk like that because no VC, you haven't been trained to do that. You've been trained to do a hundred VC calls, right? T selling them the big dream in order to get that money. And you've not been trained to like go, this is how we will help. And this is how we will protect and, you know, step by step, but yeah. you got to learn it. And like you said, if you have someone on your team who can explain this is the way they're looking at it, yeah, it makes a big, big difference. Well, you've actually just answered the final question that I had for you both. Um, so we'll close out with E. Um, and the question I wanted to ask is, is what advice you'd give to um, an entrepreneur in Nigeria, um, you know, 
down the street from you in Lagos, maybe, who's thinking about starting something new, maybe even what is the advice you'd give to yourself if you were starting Flutterwave all over again, when you realize, oh, I need to be regulated, how would you approach this and what's the advice you would give? Um, I think the first thing is, you know, one, um, identifying the community of other fintech founders like yourself and approaching the regulator together mm-hmm. um, back mm-hmm. at what really made a big difference. I mean, the regulator is unlikely to license only you. Yeah. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> you know? um, I mean, no matter how despotic or, um, you know, authoritarian the, the, the country is, they're never going to just license one person to do, yeah. to do something. <laughs> Um, the, the, I mean, you know, and you're not, especially if you're not like, you know, maybe the president's son or something like that. Like if you're just a fintech entrepreneur, there's no way to just do a monopoly and walk yeah. away. So what actually accelerates the process of getting to good regulation is if you and the people in your group can come together and like say, hey, we're all in the same category here. Um and this is what makes the most sense in terms of how we should be regulated. Yep. Immediately, the regulator's guard comes down and they want to work with you and they want to build with you because all the people who could possibly tell them something else are now speaking with one accord to the regulator. <laughs> yeah, so I, yeah. The biggest biggest hack that um, a, ton, you know, a ton of people, I think a lot of people going to fintech thinking everybody's their competitor, especially these days when, you know, it's not really clear what fintech is. But yep. but uh, but but actually, you know, rather than being all competitive, going in together actually gives you a massive, massive, massive advantage because the regulator has less work to do. And so they'll just get it done and, and give you your, your stuff really quickly. I um, love that. I um, love that. I think the other the other piece of advice I would give someone if I was doing this again, um, I would start exactly the same way, which is get into the business before you make assumptions about what you need. So if you have to partner, partner. Um, don't write a great business plan and assume you can go raising your capital requirements to run a business without even trying to run the business yourself. So look for somebody who already has the license and partner with them. Even if it's not the whole way, maybe for a little bit. Um, so you get a sense of whether you can manage the regulatory and compliance burden that um, getting a, a license would imply. Because many people get into it and they're very surprised at the level of scrutiny that it requires. And, and um, that always shocks me because I'm like, didn't you get a chance to test it out before you went and got. <laughs> also, it can take a very long time. So it's a very easy way for you to bleed a company to go bring on that infrastructure when you don't need to. The third thing I would say is, um, is you got to think very long-term um, and, and, very, and be almost like selfless when it comes to infrastructure stuff. Um, I see a lot of people who play very short-term games and they end up hurting themselves in the long run because they try to create barriers to entry for other um, other young, young, young um, companies. And 
what ends up happening ultimately is that the companies that should have been their partners don't exist. And because they don't exist, you know, you don't have to go and, and loosen the tracks for them or you end up in trouble because you had to take on some business um, that was unregulated or, or the thresholds were too high or so many things can happen, right? So try and be when you advocate regulation. Think about the consumer first and then walk backwards from the consumer's experience. Um, if you put a ton of regulation in the path of others because you want to stop them from getting to where you are and you want to put regulation in their way because you can now meet it, um, as things change, you would be providing ammunition to uh, <laughs> to the regulator to cut you down. So it's... Uh, in my in my culture, we say, you know, you you dug a pit, you know, hoping your enemy falls inside, but then you ended up inside it. Um, so you yep. got to be careful and think um, very collaboratively, um, and think long term. You know, what is good for the ecosystem long term when you are doing it. And, and you know, my final thing is what I said before: just keep in mind the government's job is to protect consumers, not to make your business successful. So. <laughs> uh, don't make that don't make your your litmus test of what good regulation is um regulation that makes your business successful i think the litmus test of good regulation is regulation that protects the consumers and helps everybody prosper brilliant well thank you both so much for an incredible conversation gabriel where can our listeners find out more about you or what you are up to in abu dhabi um, these days I'm not that active on Twitter anymore, to be honest. I don't say Twitter handle, GA and Cirillo, but, uh, I don't really post that much. So LinkedIn is a good fit. I do like to post a lot about what we're doing at Abu Dhabi Global Market. Um, my LinkedIn is just GA and Zerillo or just type Gabriel and Zerillo. And I like to post a lot of content about what's happening and in the world of regulation, but also in the world of, you know, Abu Dhabi and Abu Dhabi Global Market. So a little bit of everything there. If people want to reach really? out. And E, where can our listeners find out more about you, what you're up to? I think the best place would be the website, which would be www.future.africa. Um, so, yeah, you can just go on there and you can contact us, talk to us about, about whatever it is that you'd like to, whether you're a founder or you're an investor looking to invest in Africa. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, as always, to our listeners for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. And we look forward to seeing you next time or talking to you next time on Breaking Banks Europe. Thanks for listening to Breaking Banks Europe, a Provoke Media podcast in cooperation with Fintech Stage. Don't forget to tweet us out, shout out, or post to the team at Breaking Banks EU on Twitter. If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on our cast, let us know. See you next week on Breaking Banks Europe.